Hello and welcome to the Estate Planners Podcast. My name is Anthony Brinkman and this is the place for will writers, estate planners and solicitors that are interested in learning the tips, tools and technicalities to best help their clients. This is episode 7 entitled Animus Testandi. Animus testandi. There's a phrase to impress your clients with if you want to be a little flashy. This means the intention to make a will. Animus means motivation, or more fully, it means an attitude or a feeling that motivates somebody's actions. It's an unchanged Latin word that means mind or spirit. That's important to consider as a person's Intention is, of course, not outwardly visible. It's a totally subjective matter, and yet it requires objective evidence to ascertain what that intention was, what that motivation was in a court of law. Testandi relates to the making of a will. We have twice before mentioned in just the first few episodes that there is a root word, testari, But for good measure, let's give it a third run. It means to testify, which comes from the word testis, which means a witness. So, animus testandi is the intention to make a will. The intention to make a will. Very simply, the person must intend to make a will when doing so. Now, this might at first seem to be an obvious intention. The person is sat there saying that they want to make a will, and they are making a will. And bringing a case to court, therefore, on the basis of a lack of animus testandi, is pretty rare. But it does happen, and more often it forms part of the consideration of the court along with other elements in a challenge. Let's just take one very practical application that could raise this question. Suppose that a person had written their will in pencil. Even if it was signed and witnessed, there might be a question raised about how permanent the testator wanted that will to be. Why did they write it in pencil rather than pen? A quality of the pencil is, of course, that it is erasable. Did they therefore have some intention to make changes? In fact, a more relevant question might actually be, had any changes already been made to the will after it had been signed and witnessed? A case that I think illustrates this concept really well is actually one that comes from the USA, so does not form part of the UK law. But it is a colourful and slightly amusing case, and really does paint a pretty clear picture of a situation where animus testandi clearly wasn't really present in the person's mind. The case is Fleming versus Morrison from 1904. A will was drawn up by a solicitor, or at least the American equivalent, and was executed by a sober man of sound mind and under no undue influence. So far, so good. The question before the court was whether the document was not executed as a will, nor ever intended to be used as such. 
The circumstances of the case were that Mr Butterfield was the testator and Mary Fleming was the sole beneficiary in the so-called will. There were three witnesses to the will, one of which was a man called Sidney Goodrich. Butterfield had told Goodrich prior to signing the document that it was, quote, a fake made for a purpose, end quote, which was, namely, to entice Miss Fleming to sleep with him. Animus testandi was raised as a point of concern in the court. Did he actually intend to make a will or not? I think this case demonstrates the principle of animus testandi really well, and whilst the details of the case are quite specific, it should highlight to you, as a practitioner, the fact that your client must be making a will in order to make a will. It does also raise another question, though. How would you know? If Mr Butterfield had come to you to draft his will, leaving his entire estate to Mary Fleming, how would you know that the testator intended to make that will, or whether it was just a ruse to entice the beneficiary to sleep with him? Well, in short you wouldn't. However, in the course of taking your fact find and exploring the family structure of the testator, addressing the assets that he or she owned, the chances are that you would start to uncover facts that perhaps didn't quite make sense. In this case, we have Morrison, who stood to inherit if the will failed, and Fleming, who was the lady in question. Undoubtedly, in taking instructions, Morrison's potential claim on the estate would have come up, along with any other relevant family. Exploring these relationships and the, the reasons that they were being disinherited, and backing up any disinheritances with a good reasons why letter, you would be fulfilling your duty of care to the client. And it might well be that as you pulled the string on these outpoints, these issues that might not quite add up, that the testator would take you into his confidence and explain his motivations, at which time you could then explain this principle and the very shaky ground on which he was treading. You might also have been able to point out to Mr Butterfield that the more usual course of action to achieve his intentions is to take a lady out for dinner a few times, take her dancing or take her to a show, it's called dating, and it's what most of the rest of the human race does to win another's affections. But going back to the case, the court held that the more significant issue was actually not related to animus testandi, and it rejected probate as one of the witnesses was not actually acting as a witness because he believed that the document, and therefore the act, was fake. Here's another relevant case in the subject of animus testandi. The case is Corbett versus Neway and others from 1996. In this case, a will had been executed, but it had been left undated, awaiting a later condition to be fulfilled. Once that later condition was complete, then the will was to be dated. It was initially held by the court that the will was valid, but that was later overturned because the circumstances did not show the necessary testamentary intent. A will must have an immediate testamentary effect, an immediate 
testamentary effect. The testator cannot impose a precondition upon the effectiveness of a will. The actual circumstances of the case are as follows. Miss Trezorna, who was aged 79 in 1989 and possessed assets including her home, two farms and other land and a portfolio of investments, had made a will on the 3rd of February 1989, leaving one of the farms to her nephew William, who ended up being the plaintiff, and who was unmarried and had no children, and another farm to her niece Sarah, who had two sons, James and Jonathan, both of whom were minors. Apart from a few other small legacies, her remaining assets were then devised and bequeathed to William and Sarah in equal shares. So just to be clear, we've got two farms, one goes to nephew William, one goes to niece Sarah, a few other gifts are made, and then we have an equal 50-50 split of the residue also to William and Sarah. That was the will made in February of 1989. Later in that year, she decided instead to make a lifetime gift of the two farms, one of them to William, one of them to Sarah, and to leave the residue to Sarah's children, James and Jonathan. She instructed her solicitor to draw up the deeds of gift for the farms and to draw a new will up to supersede the February will. The transfers of the farms had not yet been completed when she signed that new will in September 1989. So she didn't date it, but asked her solicitor to insert the date once the transfers were complete. She believed, mistakenly, that this would postpone the operation of the will. However, the plaintiff, who was the nephew, William, claimed that, as a result, she lacked the necessary testamentary intent when executing the September will, which was therefore invalid, and that her estate should be distributed according to the February will. Dismissing the claim, the judge initially held that Ms Trezorna had made a valid conditional will, whose operation was subject to completion of those two lifetime gifts. However, the Court of Appeal then heard the case and reversed that decision ordering that the earlier will be admitted to probate due to the lack of testamentary intent at the moment of execution. This point is important to take from this case, that a will must be intended to take effect immediately. And this can be a useful principle to bear in mind and can actually be quite useful if you're ever in a situation where a client is procrastinating about any of the decisions that need to be made when giving instructions. Suppose, for example, that you've got a couple who have minor children and they're uncertain about who to appoint as guardians. They've narrowed the candidates down to three possibilities, A, B or C, but they can't seem to be able to make a decision. I'm sure you've had this or similar situations come up when taking instructions the clients want to discuss it and ask if they can get back to you on this point. Now, you know that if you walk out of that appointment without full instructions, you risk prolonging the process significantly. The better solution would be for them to make a provisional decision so that the will can be drafted and then confirm their choice once they've discussed it. This is essentially the principle of animus testandi at work. The will has to take immediate effect. One way of phrasing this question 
of putting this concept across to a client would be, well, if you had both of you died yesterday, Mr. and Mrs. Client, who would you want to take care of your children today? The fact is that the future is unknown and your clients can get lost in those uncertainties and unknown elements of the future and think that, well, perhaps my mother would be a good uh, guardian to choose today, but then her health isn't brilliant and perhaps in a year or two her health would be poor and in that situation she would then struggle to take care of our two children. They get into those uncertainties, don't they? They start to think with those what if this, what if that, what if the other, but of course the will has to take effect immediately. Here's another case, Parkinson versus Forden, 2010. In this case, the deceased, a Leslie Charles Forden, had appointed, quote, my nephew Mark Parkinson of 215 Ditching Road, Brighton, in the county of Sussex, end quote, together with the defendant, Edith Vera Forden, to be his executors and trustees. He'd also divided his estate in half, one half going to, quote, my said nephew Mark Parkinson, end quote. Edith Forden was one of the persons entitled to the other half. The problem was that nobody answered to the description, my nephew Mark Parkinson of 215 Ditching Road, Brighton. Although the deceased's great-nephew, Justin Parkinson, claimed that he was the intended executor and beneficiary and he brought a claim to rectify the will by replacing Mark Parkinson with Justin Parkinson. On the basis of the available evidence, the judge found that the reference to Mark Parkinson was a misdescription of Justin Parkinson, whom the deceased intended to appoint as executor and to receive the share in his residuary estate. Now, why has this case been included here? The judge in this case made a distinction about the purpose of the court in dealing with intention and rectifying details. It was clear that the testator had animus testandi, but he had got some of the details incorrect. In fact, even the address itself, Ditching Road, didn't exist. But there is a Ditchling Road in Brighton, and there is clear evidence that this was the intended address the testator was referring to. So, animus testandi isn't about getting the details correct, it's about the intention to create a will. The final case to consider is Wingrove versus Wingrove from 1885. Now, this case will be explored in more detail when we take a look at the subject of undue influence in a future episode. But it's worthy of note as the undue influence or the coercion was deemed to have caused the testator to do something that they would not otherwise have intended to do, thus affecting animus testandi. So how can we apply this principle as estate planners? This topic should be considered in more lateral terms than literal terms when considering the nature of the cases that we've looked at there. For example, it might not be that the testator's intention in making a will was to sleep with somebody, but it could be to do with some other subterfuge or some leverage that was being applied to somebody. A person recently made a comment to me in jest that they would write their daughter out of their will if she didn't start behaving. Now, obviously, this was a throwaway comment, but what if they were actually to go ahead and do that for real? What consequence would that have? 
And what about these examples? If you go to university rather than getting a job, I'll include you in my will. Or, if you give me £5,000 now, I'll leave you my 1957 Bentley in my will. Ignoring any moral implications of such agreements, if the testator was using the will as a bargaining tool with the real intention of rewriting the will shortly afterwards, it could be questioned whether there was ever an intention of the testator's wishes to take effect. So establishing the testator's purpose in making a will, their purpose, is something that's often omitted by practitioners, and yet it sits at the heart of the action. If you've asked the question, what do you want to achieve today? Or perhaps, why did you want to see me? Or what's your purpose for making a will? and you've made good notes in answer to those questions, then you've already started to establish intention. Such questions would ideally come before the actual instructions for the will itself. A little like putting the destination for a journey in your sat-nav before setting off. Again, applying a more lateral concept to this principle, I recall seeing a stand at a business fair some years ago that was offering to write basic wills for £10 on the spot. And for anybody that did that, they would have their name put into a prize draw for, I think it was a set of golf clubs. Now, ignoring the many, many problems that any self-respecting practitioner would have with this kind of market employ, there would probably be a pretty high chance of winning the golf clubs. And one might consider that a keen golfer could write a, an off-the-cuff will for exactly that reason. Animus testandi could then be called into question if any of those wills was to be challenged. What about somebody that writes a basic will in order to simply get rid of a pushy salesman that's trying to sell them some sort of expensive package of services that they don't actually need or want? Or a will that was made to satisfy a partner's concerns with the true intention of revoking that will at the earliest opportunity with a different will that reflects their true intentions? The structure of your appointment is what will help you to establish the subject matter of intention. For the purpose of this podcast episode, it's good practice to establish early in the meeting, and again, before taking instructions, what the purpose of the meeting is, and what the client wishes to achieve. Having a good record of this early intention, especially when it's been very thoroughly explored, will give you a clear picture of the client's goals. Alright, so that brings us to the end of this topic and the end of this episode. As we're now a few episodes into the podcast, and as a quick update, it seems like I will have the time to keep these coming out on a fortnightly basis. I said at the end of episode one that it would either be monthly or fortnightly, and I've managed to set up a reasonably efficient procedure for researching, writing, recording, editing... So yes, fortnightly looks doable. I hope you found this subject useful and I shall look forward to speaking with you again in a couple of weeks. Thank you for listening.